from some guy you probably met on the internet. It's the Casey Lewis Podcast. It's Monday, March 7th, 2016, and this is the Casey Lewis Podcast, where we talk about crushing debt, loving work, and chasing dreams that matter. I'm your host, Casey Lewis. Hey, do you have a question about money, careers, debt, investing, college, cars, or real estate? There are a few ways that you can ask your question and have it answered as part of the show. You could visit the website at CaseyLewisPodcast.com. Click on the questions from the internet button and uh, submit your question that way. Or you could hit me up on Twitter or Facebook at Lewis. So with that, uh, we're going to kick off today's show with a question from Sally. I mean, it is a long one. There's a lot of backstory here, so we'll just dive right in. She says, in reference to your most recent episode, I understand that the government is giving me my change and not a refund. However, being someone who does not understand all the ins and outs of tax codes, we've had issues in the past where we ended up owing money. When we were first married and waiting tables to put ourselves through college, we had allocated tips that they assumed we received. We didn't understand that meant on our pay stubs. We ended up owing money on tips that were estimated much higher than what we had actually received. After that year, we knew we had to keep track of our tips on paper because the allocations were higher. No longer did we want to end up owing taxes after the fact. We had kids, struggled financially, and then used our tax refunds. And she puts refunds in quotation marks because it's actually getting your change back if you haven't uh, heard that before, go listen to episode 46. But she says, we used our tax refunds to pay off hospital bills and whatever else needed to be taken care of. Over the years, we've used our tax refund more like a way of saving money for taking care of big ticket items. I know this is not the best way. However, I do not understand how you can estimate your taxes ahead of time. After not having owed money in over 20 years, we had a really good year in a home-based business a few years ago. However, a great portion of the money we earned went back into that business to help it grow, which was part of our tax deduction as well. This was around the same year our youngest child reached the age where he could no longer be claimed on our taxes. We owed the government close to $1,500 that year because they started making us pay quarterly, assuming that our income would be the same the next year. Unfortunately, toward the end of our great year, our business started to nosedive. The year we had to pay quarterly taxes, we were not making as much money at all from that business, but we still had to pay the tax because the tax man said so. So then last year, we ended up getting a refund again. We do not know how to estimate what we are going to owe the government when our income changes from year to year. So we always let the employer take out the highest amount so we do not end up in that situation. I'm thankful that we did or we would have been paying a lot more in quarterly taxes that next year. So although I agree agree theoretically with the idea of not letting the government keep my money for a year as an interest-free loan, I don't see a practical way of knowing how much we would actually owe the following April 15th. Not having this knowledge could result in us owing, again, a budget-busting amount of money to the government. Unless you know a way to calculate this amount, I think we'll stick with the refund model. Well, first, thank you for writing in, Sally. Second, I read that whole thing because I got several questions or comments or concerns. And every time I bring this up year after year, I get similar stories from many, many people that um, that basically say somewhat the same thing. Like I can't, I can't uh, allocate my taxes appropriately and I'm just, I'd rather get the refund than owe the money at the end of the year or at the tax season. So 
Um, to that, I just wanted to give one solid reply, one place that I could point people to. And so that is going to be this, uh, this question, um, here on episode 47. Um, and I, I hear you, I get it. And I'm not mad at you. If you get down and you owe the government at the end of the year, three or four or $500. And I'm not mad at you. If you get a refund of three or four or $500, but when we start getting refunds of 2000 and of 3000 and 5,000 and $10,000 refunds, which I hear about on a regular basis, it means you're not even trying and you're not recognizing that you're struggling to get ahead. You're struggling to pay down your debts. You're struggling to build up a savings account. You're struggling to plan for retirement or for your kid's college or to start building wealth. You're struggling to do all these things because you're giving 300 or 400 or $500 or $1,000 a month away to the government and then waiting to get it all back at one time. And the problem that happens is exactly what you said here, Sally, is that once you get those big ticket or once you get that refund, you would use it as a savings account to take care of big ticket things. You'd use it as a down payment on a new car. You'd use it to pay off some debts or some old student loans, or you'd use it to pay off your hospital bills, or you'd use it to buy a computer because your computer doesn't work, or you'd use it for something that normally you wouldn't use it for. Normally, if you were just bringing in $400 a month, you would take that money and apply it to your debts first, and then you'd apply it to build up a big, nice, healthy emergency account, and then you'd start saving for retirement, and you'd start using it for that, but instead, you say, oh, you know what? Our car, it's at 100,000 miles, and we've got this $5,000 refund check, so let's just put the money down on that, and that's what we you just you trade in your current car, you put the five thousand with it, and you get a new car. But you didn't really need a new car. Your hundred thousand mile car, you probably could make it another two, three, four years on it. You could save up the cash and not have to use that as a down payment, but instead use it um, and just pay cash for the new car and save your cash flow so that you can apply that to your other financial goals. But when we get an influx of cash that we we're expecting, but we weren't expecting. We just do stupid stuff with it. We go buy a TV because we think we need a new TV. And so that is the danger that happens is number one, we're giving our the government way too much of our money, interest-free. We struggle throughout the whole year. And then when, when they give us that money back, we go do something very stupid with it. And so that is usually the problem. These people that get a $300 refund and think I'm mad at you, I'm not mad at you for a $300 refund. I'm probably going to have a refund. I may owe a little bit some years. The goal is to be right as near to zero as you can. And so if you don't know how to allocate your taxes and what you're going to owe, well, then you just need to dig in a little bit and figure out what's going on. So if you have a stable, steady job where it's a W-2 income, you make the same amount every two weeks or every month or on the whatever your payday is, you, you're getting that. You can estimate that very, very easily. And if you've been working that job for five years and you know exactly what your income is going to be, you can estimate your tax bill very easily. You go look at your tax bill. You pull up your uh, tax return from last year. You look at how much you paid in taxes to the IRS, not how much you got back or not how much you owed when you did your t- return, but actually the dollar amount that you owed to the IRS that you paid in taxes for last tax year. 
and you divide that out by the number of taxes and you talk to your HR department and you say, here's how much I need you to take out. Now, if you're self-employed or if you're commission-based or you're not necessarily in a long-term job and you don't know what your income is going to do because one year you might make 30000 the next year you might make 60000 well, then you're going to need a little more help. And I always recommend with tax stuff that you talk to a CPA, talk to a professional that does this for a living, and it's not very expensive. And they'll help you allocate quarterly if you owe quarterly for your small business or they'll help you decide here's about what we're expecting to have to pay and you just set aside the money i know in our in our primary business the general rule of thumb that we've used is 20 percent of profits get set aside into an account 20 percent of gross profits so not so revenue minus cost of goods sold That is the amount that goes into a separate account, 20% of that number. So if it's $10,000, we put $2,000 aside into a separate account and just have it sit over there. And then I'll meet with the CPA once a quarter when the quarterly taxes are due, say, here's where we were at. What do we need to pay? And he tells us what to pay and we've got the money. And then if there's extra, I've got my own refund to deal with. And so our goal is to get to when we're filing our taxes for the year to have that number that we owe be zero, either that we owe them or that they owe us. We want it to be as close to zero. So I'm not angry with you if it's $300. I'm not angry with with you if it's $500. I know it's hard to get exactly. The tax codes change year to year to year. So we just want to get as close as we can to it. But when you start getting these bigger refunds, $2,000, $3,000. If you're getting a $1,000 refund on a $20,000 a year income, that's a big deal. That's a lot of your income being set aside to the government. And we don't need that. You need that $1,000 coming home. And so that was the whole idea behind it, Sally. If you are getting as close as you can and you're focused and you've done the best you can and it's just going to come down to you're going to get a $1,000 refund and you've got a $60,000 a year income. Okay, cool. You got as close as you could. But I challenge you, focus, write it down, meet with a CPA, and do the best that you can so that you don't have a refund each and every year. And I'm dedicating two episodes in a row to this topic, mainly because we're in tax season, but also because it's a big deal. I get letter after letter, email after email, phone call, Facebook conversation, Twitter conversation, over and over and over again where people are struggling to get ahead or when I tell them, hey, you need to sell your car and you need, we need to start working through these debts and we're doing the, you know, the difficult stuff that we talk about. The, it takes a lot to get out of debt. And then I find out that they've got a $5,000 tax refund for the last three years. I'm like, wait a second. I know why you're struggling now. Because you're, getting three, you're giving 300 or 400 extra dollars a month away waiting to get it all back, and then because you've been behind and you've had to sacrifice substantially more than you really needed to for an entire year, and you've fallen behind on your mortgage or you've fallen behind on car payments, you use all of that money to play catch-up, and then you say, you know what, we haven't had a vacation, let's go ahead and use a thousand of this to go on a vacation. Like, that's not how this is supposed to work. And it's crushing you and you're not able to get ahead. And so this is a very key area where you can easily, without doing 
hardly anything other than making a couple of phone calls and looking at some paperwork, you can change your entire financial picture for the people that are getting huge tax refunds. All it takes is a couple of little tiny adjustments and magically your income goes up. What you bring home goes up. And then we can manage that money wisely so that you can pay down your debts, build up an emergency account, and start saving for your vacations and for your retirement and for your kids' college and for your car replacements and all of these other things that we have to take care of. So thank you for writing in, Sally. Um, if you have a question for me, head over to the podcast episode page at the Casey, or excuse me, at CaseyLewisPodcast.com. Uh, or you can, as always, hit me up on Twitter and Facebook at Casey in Lewis. Today's show is brought to you by our real estate referral team. If you're thinking of buying or selling a house anywhere in the country, we can help. So here's how it works. We're going to identify the top real estate agents in your area. So if you're out in Georgia, you reach out to us. We're going to find the top real estate agents in your area. We're going to interview them to make sure that they're going to be a good fit for what you need and that they can get the job done. And then we'll give you a recommendation on a few different agents and then you can meet with them and decide who is going to be the best fit for you to represent you in the sale or purchase of your new home. So finding the right agent is one of the most important steps in any real estate transaction. And with our no cost service, we make it simple for you to hire the right person that will make you the most money in the least amount of time. So to get more information for that, you can head over to the real estate page at Casey-Lewis.com. All right. So, uh, it is, I'm sure you probably get this a lot. Um, fundraisers at your house with your kids. It drives me nuts. It really, really does. Like we, we just signed up and we're, we're doing baseball this year. And, uh, the very first practice, we get a, a sheet that says, Hey, we're selling, we're selling bed sheets for the team. And this is our fundraiser this year. And we did a fundraiser for soccer when we were in the soccer in the fall and the PTA has us doing fundraisers and we just are inundated with fundraisers around our house. And I hate it. I personally just hate it. I want to write a check, um, just here's the money um, because the school or organization, whoever it is, they're going to get more money if I just would write them a check anyway, right? Like I could buy $40 worth of bed sheets where the school is going to get $5 after it's all done, or I could give $40 to the school. They'd get more money that way. And I wouldn't have to sell junk that people don't want. Um, but I've been taking a really close look at this and I started thinking about it. And um, I really, uh, fundraising, Specifically, when I was uh, when I was a kid, I was in Boy Scouts, and we sold popcorn in Boy Scouts. The you know the the Christmas tubs of caramel or cheddar or white cheddar or regular or whatever all the different flavor popcorns are. That's what we sold um, to compete with those silly Girl Scouts and their cookies that are delicious. Um, and so I started looking at this, and there's I found five ways that fundraising actually has probably the number one thing from my childhood that has taken me really, really far into my sales career. So the first thing uh, that I've noticed is that fundraising helps with goal setting. Like it was one of the first times in my childhood that I could sit down and say, this is a goal. I need to go sell $100 worth of popcorn. I need to go sell for our troop $500 worth of popcorn. And we set a goal as a team goal, as a as a group um, either if it's school or Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, whatever, you set a, 
a goal for your group and then you break that out into individual goals and it was the first time that we got to work on goal setting and so translate that out 20 years later and goal setting is a huge part of what I do um I said huge like uh huge Donald Trump uh huge um it is a huge part of what we do uh to know here's how much money we need to make here's the revenue targets that we have for this quarter here are the sales projections this is like goal setting is deep into my career and what I do and uh fundraising was a great start for that um second I can clearly communicate an objective and ask for the sale so so many times I meet salespeople that they don't sell. They don't ask for the sale. They don't ask you to buy it. They just start talking about their product and they never clearly communicate what they're trying to have you do. And so when you're a you know 10 year old boy and you're trying to sell popcorn, you knock on the door, you ring the doorbell, somebody answers and you say, hi, my name is Casey. I'm selling popcorn for troop one, two, three. And would you like to buy some? clearly communicate what the intention is. I am here to sell you this. Do you want to buy something? And you ask for the sale. We've all been to the car lot where the car salesman never asks you if you want to buy the car. They just keep talking. And so many salespeople just keep talking and they never ask you if you want to buy it. And you wanted to buy it 20 minutes ago and they never asked. And so you just walk off the lot and you go to another lot and you buy the car. So selling in fundraising, when I was going door to door trying to sell popcorn and I'd meet somebody new and they may ask me a question like, what are you selling the popcorn for? Well, it's for our Boy Scout troop to raise money so that we can do X, Y, and Z. Would you like to buy some? And you clearly communicate, I'm selling popcorn for this purpose. Would you like to buy some? And you can clearly communicate an objective and that in real estate sales, in any type of sales that I've ever been in in my career, that is has been huge and has been a huge standout among other people that aren't as good of salespeople. The third thing fundraising taught me is that I can handle rejection. You know, you go door to door, not everybody likes popcorn. Everybody loves the Girl Scout cookies. Like everybody's going to buy that. Um, but not everybody just loves popcorn. And so you go door to door and you knock on a door and somebody would say, no, not today. And so you go, okay, thank you. And you'd walk to the next house and you knock on the door and you'd say, would you like to buy popcorn? And they'd say no. And you'd do that. And you'd only sell one in seven, one in eight houses. You just, you learn to deal with the rejection. And so now translate that out 20 years later. And I don't get my feelings hurt if somebody tells me no. I just go find out find somebody else that wants to say yes. And so again, fundraising helped me prepare myself for the rejection that I would handle in my career. Another thing fundraising taught me is to come up with creative solutions. You know, we set a goal to sell $500 worth of popcorn. But if I didn't get there by going door to door, I needed to find other things to do. And so we would set up tables at grocery stores. We would, if, if uh, the internet were very popular back then, I would have set up a website and I would have shared it on Facebook and gotten friends and family to buy popcorn from me that way. Um, 
creatively, we would have to pick up the phone and call family and friends and say, hey, I'm selling popcorn. Can you help me out? So we had to find ways to hit the goal and be creative about it. My parents didn't do this for me. Um, So they would certainly take the order form to work, but they would really take me to work with them with the order form. And I would have to go around and ask people to buy popcorn. I had to find creative solutions to make stuff happen. And again, 20 years later, if we're trying to hit a revenue goal and we lay out the plans and they don't go exactly as we thought they would, we have to be creative to come up with new ways to sell uh, the product or to reach our revenue goals. And last, fundraising taught me to be competitive because I was competing against other people in my group for top prizes. And I always thought that was silly, but it's the same thing in your job. You're competing against other people, especially if you're in sales, you're competing against other people for incentive trips, for prizes, for recognition, for promotions, for more money. And so fundraising really taught me to be competitive with my sales abilities and to realize that I needed to go get more rejection so that I could get more yeses, so that I could hit my goal, so that I could win the top prize. And so those are the five ways that fundraising has helped me. And so as much as I hate the constant barrage that we get of fundraising for scented candles and cookies and popcorn and bedsheets and the other junk that we don't even need in our house, I think fundraising really provides a great opportunity that I needed to start embracing to prepare my kids for their futures and for their careers. Because if I just write a check to their school, I don't have to deal with fundraising. They don't have to deal with fundraising. But in the future, my kid may not be as prepared for rejection as I am because my parents let me go door to door selling popcorn. So with that, I'm going to wrap up today's show. Hey, if you have questions for me, head over to the podcast episode page at casey-lewis.com. You could also go to caseylewispodcast.com. Hit me up on Twitter or Facebook at Casey N. Lewis. Your dreams matter. Put your money in a winning position so you can do some pretty awesome stuff. And I'll see you next time.